You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy, with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Watt Watchers, providing super smart devices to monitor and manage energy use, and SolarAy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. Hello and welcome to this new episode of Energy Insiders. My name is Giles Parkinson, I'm the editor of Renew Economy. It's the first podcast of spring and joining me on this fine day, well not such a fine day actually as it turns out up here, but um, David Leach from ITK. How are you David? I'm very well Giles. I trust all of our listeners are well. My final podcast before I go on leave for a few weeks and I'd like to say hello to our special guest today. Indeed. Look, I'd like to welcome Emma Hurd from the Investor Group on Climate Change. Um, hello, thanks for hello. joining us, Emma. Yeah, how are no you? Look, um, Good to be here. The Investor Group on Climate Change, um, it, look, it's great that you're on board. Um, it's $1.3 trillion um, of funds under management that you guys represent. Is that just in Australia or across the globe? Actually, it's over $2 trillion, uh, Giles. So uh, across our membership base, there's over 70 members these days, Australia and, and New Zealand funds predominantly, but we also have some international funds who are very active in the local markets uh, with aggregated uh, yeah, $2 trillion in funds under management, actually. So it's a pretty, pretty big industry and a pretty big chunk of the Australian investment industry too. And you guys work, if I understand, in partnership with a similar global group, which has, you better remind me how, much, how, how many hundreds of trillions they've got under management. Well, I mean, we, we, we work with a number of other global investor groups across Asia, Europe, North America, uh, and the four of us together, uh, I don't think we've actually aggregated it up to a single number, but what we do tend to use is um, use our, our combined membership numbers on specific projects and initiatives, and they tend to have some pretty uh, eye-wateringly large uh, investment sizes attributed to a lot of great climate change initiatives. So, but um, but the four groups um, from the four different corners of the world don't necessarily have a single number, but our members have lots of capital to play with when looking at climate change. Emma, it's um, it's uh, uh, an old maxim of the detective stories. I so love follow the money, and it's always been a view that when the finance industry takes a strong view on something. Uh, it tends to have their, the companies and businesses that they invest in react. I just wondered how you could, as opposed to the official view, what your sense is of how your membership organisations are thinking about climate change and what they're doing about it today as compared to what they might have been doing three or four years ago. Yeah, no, it's a really good question because I think um, we've seen over a number of years now, like 10 years, 15 years plus, we've seen a pretty strong uh, growth in the responsible investment industry uh, and in uh, sort of negative or positively screened funds, as they're often called, which are like explicitly targeting better environmental or social outcomes. But what we're really seeing now, and I would very much point this very specifically towards 2015, December and Paris, what we're seeing now is the main bulk of a lot more mainstream action moving into integration of carbon risk into investment decisions. And that's a whole different ballgame because that's not just about creating particular funds for particular sections of your membership base or your investment portfolio. It's about the wholesale integration of climate risk considerations into investment and capital markets. And that is something that we are now definitely seeing, not just in Australia, but globally. And there are some accounting standards, I think, that are still in draft form, the, what are they, the TFCD or something that are kind of providing some, it's always nice to have the accounting industry when they start to come on board, you, 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 uh, you know things are really serious, is, is that a good way to think about it? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, the very catchily titled uh, Financial Stability Board Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosure. Um, just trust the accountant industry to come up with uh, with a great uh, great name for themselves, or the TCFD. Um, you know, that has really been phenomenally important. I mean, it was actually, uh, you know, coincidentally launched uh, in December 2015 in Paris at the same time that the Paris Agreement was finalised. You know, it's it's technically a voluntary standard, but I think what we're seeing is in markets all around the world, you know, in, in every region, increasingly you're seeing investors picking this up and engaging with the companies that they, they invest in, have equity holdings in, you know, our owners in, and saying, we expect you to be reporting on this. And the, the speed at which those recommendations are being adopted is, is, is quite phenomenal, including here in Australia. And, you know, that once you report it, once you report it to market, more importantly, um, it, you really begin to see how that changes the way the companies, companies behave. And it's a work in progress, but it's already having a significant impact. So tell me then, um, you issued a report, I think just a couple of weeks, or prepared a report a couple of weeks ago, talking about the appetite for investment in clean energy and sort of climate-related investments. Just how disappointed is the investment community with the latest political reductions and this apparent abandonment of any emissions factor in uh, energy policy? Yeah, so the survey that we, we undertook, which is the basis of that report, we, we ran the survey of our members over the, the uh, June period, roughly speaking. And what we were asking them is, uh, you know, how active are you in, in low carbon investment? Where are you active in terms of what markets and what asset classes? Um, you know, we asked some technical questions around how do you define green investment? You know, how do you uh, integrate it into your um, uh, investment manager mandates, that sort of thing. And then interestingly, we asked them what are the barriers to increasing investment in low carbon? And this survey, bear in mind, was undertaken at a point where there was pretty strong consensus or conviction across the markets in Australia that the National Energy Guarantee would be uh, you know, in some form or another would get across the line. You know, there was always a chance that something would happen, which it did, but there was a pretty high expectation that it would get through. In that context of fairly high certainty on regulatory settings for energy market, regulatory uncertainty still came a very close second as the biggest barrier to investment in low carbon opportunities. It was just pipped at the post by deal size, as in are there deals big enough in your local markets to actually get the institutional investor community engaged. So, you know, in this sense, we, we, we know that the disappointment is, is, is pretty high. We would expect if we reran that survey um, shortly, you know, now, uh, not that long after the actual events of the last few weeks, we would expect those, those figures to have moved around quite a lot. And from what, from what I'm hearing from my members, there's, there's very much a general state as, uh, of confusion as to what just happened and how it all changed so quickly. So I guess it's um, you, uh, the other thing that showed up in that survey was the lack of investment opportunities. And if you're a fund manager, the, the good news in the NEG being abandoned is that, in fact, you actually haven't got that much money exposed to it at the moment anyway. Uh, but to me, what we've seen, what I've seen is a lot of foreign investment in the, um, you know, the wind and, and the solar sectors, to be sure. What can the um, uh, IGCC do to actually increase investment overall? Or is that something it should be aiming at? <laughs> well, investment is increasing overall. Whether or not that's happening in Australia is a different different question. I mean, you know, the, the institutional investors, large fund managers, large asset owners, 
they are um, very clearly looking for low carbon investment opportunities. And if they can't get them in Australia, then they will go and find them offshore. Um, that has been clear for the last few years over the, the, the last five years of, of extreme uncertainty around low carbon investment. It's been true. It's true of all markets. It's been true of the energy sector in particular. Um, so if, if we can't get certainty around the regulatory settings in Australia, then you would expect to return to that trend. Having said that, there are also um, other ways in which investors are finding to get deals done. They're not um, efficient. They're not clean, they're messy, they're small, they're state-based. Uh, it's not an orderly or planned transition, which is another expression that, um, that investor community often likes to argue. We like to see an orderly and planned transition. But it's, uh, you know, the, the, the argument that if you don't regulate, you can stop the transition going on in the energy sector, um, I, I think is, is well past its, 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 um, its due date. I mean, I, you know, what we're seeing is that this transition is going to happen. It's just a question of how well Australia manages it and whether Australian investors uh, do it here or invest in it offshore. We were hoping to get you last week, actually, just after these political ructions emerged and um, you flew down to Canberra. I'm, I'm not too sure whether you're actually visiting politicians or other sort of um, stakeholders down there, but um, what was your sense of what was going on down there and what is it that you're hoping emerges now over the next nine months or do we simply wait for the next election? I think that's the multi-trillion dollar question at the moment, actually. I mean... Um I think no one's quite sure what the lay of the land is uh, at the moment um, when it comes to uh, energy policy in Australia. Um, I, I, I think there's a, there's a lot of um, conversations going on in, within the industry, uh, within, uh, between investors and the industry, companies, uh, the corporate sector more broadly. Uh, I, I think that there's you know, still a lot of dust to settle over the events of the last couple of weeks. Um, that's clear. I think what is also very clear is that it, it is not uh, in Australia's economic interests in any way, shape or form to step back from the Paris Agreement. And we've also seen that come through quite strongly uh, in, in terms of the new government. There's recognition of that, that um, despite some, some arguments, there's no appetite to, to move away from, from the Paris Agreement, which is good and which we would very strongly support, uh, obviously. More in terms of what next for the energy sector, I mean, I think you know there there's a lot of conversations going on about how to take it forward. Um, you know, from our perspective, we um, we can't see how you can move forward with an energy policy that does not have an emissions component, um, because it is such a fundamental part of the energy system in Australia. Um, we can't see how you can regulate for reliability without regulating for emissions at the same time because it is a key, the two sides of the same coin. And we would very strongly argue for an integrated energy and climate policy which actually does work towards delivering on Australia's commitments under the Paris Agreement as well. So it's, a, it's an ongoing conversation. Uh, as we, One thing we've learned in Australia is that um, um, climate policy might be rough but it, uh, it, it's all about winning, winning the war rather than necessarily focusing on losing the battle again. I, I agree with that. And uh, I, I come back to, it's nice that the IGCC is a lobby group within the, but I mean, another way you could think about it if you were really cynical, and fund management makes me cynical sometimes, is that it's just the, the nice bit of the fund management's industry and that the, the fund management's industry really will just get on with trying to make money however it can because that's what their fundamental objective is about. Are you able to mobilise uh, you know, your members to really get behind a push in a particular direction uh, for anything 
or do you still find that they're um you know have have many different interests i mean yeah um I, yeah i'm intrigued by the nice part of the industry um i think it's all shades of <laughs> shades of nice <laughs> when it comes to the investment industry and i'd also kind of say that the entire industry is all about making money and managing risk that's not any different if you're talking about climate change. This is what we are talking about is fundamentally a conversation about how do you responsibly invest your members' uh, um, um, superannuation and, and pension funds? How do you actually generate risk-adjusted returns in a, an environment, in a global environment where low-carbon transition is occurring and in an energy sector in particular where you've got huge disruption going on? Um, so in that sense, I, I, I don't see this as an issue for the nice part of the industry. This is an issue for the whole economy and, and the whole investment industry as well. You'd be hard pressed to find an investor, no matter uh, what their stripes, who are uh, exposed to an energy company who wouldn't have an understanding of carbon policy in some way, shape or form today. And you, you wouldn't have for the last few years, that's for sure. Um, so, I, you know, I, I don't think this is an issue about environmental policy. This is fundamentally a question about economic policy now. Uh, and that's what our members are really interested in as well, getting some certainty, getting some, some predictability, getting some stability and moving forward on this. And it's not just us that's saying it. We've got the financial regulators on the other side telling us as an industry that they also expect us to be managing it. So it's, 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 it's a very different conversation than it was a few years ago. So how long do you think Australia, I mean, Australia, as you, as, as, um, you and David just both mentioned, they've sort of stopped short of actually exiting Paris um, Agreement, as some on the right um, were urging them to do, simply because they've understood that um, that may threaten the EU fair trade um, agreement that they're trying to negotiate. They're also going to the Pacific Islands um, in Nauru in the Pacific Islands Conference and um, just can't do that. But for how long? I mean, you know, it annoyed me to hear Maurice Payne saying on radio the other day, saying, oh, well, look, no, it's a top priority. It's a top priority um, for us. But evidently, uh, nothing is actually happening. How long can Australia continue to pretend that it's the top priority and not actually do anything? And I'm just thinking here in terms of sort of international capital flows and things like that. And you're off to a conference, I think, in California next week where such things are going to be discussed. Yeah, well... Certainly for the investment community, you can't pretend that nothing's happening and that you don't need to be looking at the market signal that the Paris Agreement actually provides. And it's interesting that it's whether or not you're talking about trade, whether you're talking about regional security, whether you're talking about uh, uh, you know, in investment uh, in, in key industry sectors, whether you're talking about financial regulation, whether you're talking about stability of transmission infrastructure or the system, you can't escape climate change. So how long can Australia go without having policy response to, to the Paris Agreement? Well, we have a policy response. The decisions that are being made today, even if it's a decision not to implement something, is a choice that is being made with real-world implications as well. So it's not, we don't have a vacuum. We have choices being made. Uh, it, the question is whether or not they are the best way for Australia to respond to the, to the, the global forces shaping the low-carbon transition or not. I think that is the more important question. David, um, oh, actually, just a quick um, shout out to our sponsors, um, Solaray Energy and What Watches. We do thank you for your continued ongoing and long support. David, is there anything that our new Energy Minister, Angus Taylor, and our Environment Minister, Melissa Price, has said over the last week that um, gives you more confidence or less confidence about where we're heading? Uh, I have no more confidence. I'm the confidence I have is that the industry basically is pretty unhappy at the moment, the renewable energy industry, which you would expect them to be, 
And uh, if you read The Australian, which I do, uh, you probably think that that makes everyone over there pretty happy too. If the renewable energy is unhappy, then, then according to the base, things are good. <laughs> um, uh, but I, I think the problem is that economic events keep on going. Um, the coal stations in New South Wales keep getting older, keep reaching towards the end of their life. The, the median age for a coal plant to close is 35 years around the world. They're mostly de- uh, built for a design life of over 40 years, but not 50 years. And so I still think the best bet is they're all going to close over the next year. And, you know, the question is whether you can find investment to finance a new coal-fired station. I doubt that IGCC members are going to be rushing into that, uh, but the government still has the possibility to do so if they wanted to. Um, but not the time probably to get it organised. So I haven't heard too much. I, 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 I like, I'm not as negative on Melissa Price as uh, some people are. I don't really care that she was a lawyer at a resources company. I said this last week, uh, there's plenty of room for lawyers in the world and there's plenty of room for resource companies in the world. We like resource companies. I own shares in a lithium company and I'm, I'm glad I own them. Uh, the question is, it's all about policy. That's that's all. And I don't think there's going to be any Liberal Party policy effectively. They're just going to pay lip service to something. Uh, they don't really get it. And that's the difference. But it's for all, IGCC and everyone else, it's how seriously you take it. It's not, not it's whether you talk the talk's easy, as we say, it's walk the talk. Walk the walk. Yeah, indeed. Um, you wrote a very interesting story about California this week. Um, last week in um, in the California State Legislature, their main bill, which talks about um, zero carbon by, I think, 2045 or 2050, um, effectively 100% renewable energy grid by 2045. Quite fascinating. Could you just give us a brief overview of what you sort of found there in your article? Well, uh, Giles, I don't want to spend... Uh, uh, the, the thing, it wasn't interesting to me. California is interesting because it's a big grid that is only fairly loose, like it's uh, an, a, the fifth biggest economy in the world. Uh, its electricity consumption is about 50% bigger than Australia. Uh, and yet their electricity, they have a higher percentage of wind and solar already, mainly solar. And that's expected to increase sharply out to 2030. Uh, and they've been able to do that by keeping the wholesale price uh, down at around about 42 Aussie dollars um, and, and also to keep consumer prices uh, uh, below those in Australia. So, of course, they've got cheap gas in the United States, um, but they're going to use less gas in the future. They're going to be putting some batteries in uh, to replace some of the gas plants as they go forward. Um, because they can do that with their modelling. They also got a bit of geothermal and things. But I think there's a lot of lessons to show um, about how to do it from California. They're even ahead of Europe in many ways in the single-minded and determined approach that a big grid is going about a major decarbonisation job. And so it's not that I know all the answers. Uh, I certainly don't. Uh, All I can see is an example of of a large company doing the job. Well, indeed. Um, Emma, I'd like to sort of bring you in here. I mean, it's interesting. California is not the first American state to go um, with 100% renewable energy target. Hawaii did it last year. And it was interesting because the institutions and the utilities fought so hard against that. And they, you know, they fought and they fought and they fought saying it's impossible, can't do it. It's going to cause all sorts of different things. The governor and the legislature um, held firm and said, no, this is what you're doing. We want you to do it. 
And when it became a fait accompli, the utilities put their hand up and said, well, actually, we can probably do it quicker than what you say anyway, so <laughs> how would you like to get it started? It just comes down to political <laughs> leadership, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I think there's an interesting question as to state versus national um, uh, leadership and policy implications there as well. Um, you know, interesting thing for Australia then. Should well, we exactly. I mean, I, I, I guess I'm not really necessarily making a statement here. I'm just making an observation that um, sometimes perhaps it's easier to to lead at the state level than it is at the national level. Um, sometimes perhaps it's just a function of the um, marginal seats on any given election year. Uh, it's 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 hard to say. But I, I mean, I guess what I do know is that when you know, the, despite the ins and outs of what political leadership actually looks like, I mean, I think what we've clearly seen in a number of different circumstances that if it was just straight down to the technology, then we could do it. We could be 100% renewables. Um, the question is, how do you manage that transition? Uh, and how do you manage the disruption that comes from technological change? And, you know, I can't help wondering, I was just list, I was listening to Dave's comments before about California and I was actually thinking, I wonder if we were doing this for reasons that had absolutely nothing to do with any environmental benefit, whether this would have been an easier policy discussion um, both in Australia and in the US as well. Um, the fact that it just so happens to have environmental benefits may be what's actually caused so much of the problem. Well, I think there are two things about that, Emma. Uh, firstly, we can see in Australia how we were able to get a taxes on oil through, which everyone accepted because it was good for conservation when those taxes were put in. And they work to, for the average household, I've done the samples, they work to about a, a, the same as a carbon price of $30 a tonne. Uh, on the impact on household costs. And yet people very rarely complain about the oil taxes. And I personally don't think it's really anything to do with the environment that makes it so difficult. The environment is a pretext. The difficulty is, and always has been, because Australia has a very large coal industry. And there is just a huge amount of money invested in that coal industry, in the exports that we have and in the domestic coal sales, even though that coal industry itself is increasingly foreign owned. Uh, and those guys just have a, so much dollars at stake that they're prepared to do whatever it takes. And, and as we've seen, frankly, in industries like tobacco, when you get smart, intelligent people trying to influence with a lot of money, trying to influence public opinion, uh, they find ways to make it happen. That's what I think, sounding emotional. I mean, I, I certainly think it's interesting that you've seen this disconnect in Australia taking place. And I, I actually think is accelerating between corporate action and um, the public discussion, uh, political discussion around a lot of issues to do with um, carbon and energy. I mean, if you actually looked at what companies are doing, um, then you see some, you know, some really significant steps in investment being made in alternative technologies and energy sources. And if that's not happening because there's a regulatory signal, if they're not being told to do that by the government, then why are they doing that? Uh, are they listening to broader market forces? Are they looking at, you know, rational factors such as cost of technology or, or, or cost of energy prices and, and alternatives? Are they taking a decision about the future direction of economic transformation? Um, companies are doing things which are very different to what you're seeing on the front page of the paper every day in terms of the, the kinds of actions you would expect to see if, if, it, if we were only looking at it through the lens of politics. And so in that sense, I think, you know, corporate action is, is, is an interesting indicator and barometer of change. 
uh, is my first point. The second point is very much that you're also seeing with things like the um, the task force, the, the TCFD, when companies have to put in their annual report and, and adopt the same sorts of provisions around uh, the Corporations Act for Disclosure or for Continuous Disclosure, for example, they behave very differently in terms of their advocacy than if they're just doing it for you know, a good old stand-up, knock-em-down political fight over regulation. So having to actually clearly articulate what the real material financial cost or benefit is of particular actions changes the tenor of the debate as well. And I think that as TCFD gets more widely adopted, as that becomes more relevant, as you see more investor pressure on Australian corporates around what they're doing and saying, then you will also see that trend accelerate. Uh, and I agree with that, all of that, and I think it's not just uh, at the corporate level, although that's certainly vitally important because, let's face it, it's old men who sit around board tables, uh, older men, who make most of the decisions, and once you convince those groups, uh, then you tend to get on. But uh, it's, it's, um, we also see the National Farmers Federation taking a quite distinct line these days from the National Party. Um, uh, and we're seeing consumers, if I look at those statistical surveys of US house prices, which show that there's now quite a discount by householders, owners priced into coastal real estate exposed to sea level change. And I bet if you did the same study in Australia, you'd find the same thing that, you know, there's all these different strands working in the one direction, working towards um, weaving themselves into a rope. Uh, that is basically going to pull us in the direction that we want to go and re gradually reduce the resistance. That's what uh, we're all working to. It just doesn't happen to go in a straight line. Well, this is the other side of the cost equation, of course, which is the actual cost of climate change. And increasingly, you're seeing that we're getting a better understanding of what the physical effects of climate change will cost us. And as a country where more than 85% of us live on a coastal zone, where we're already pretty familiar with heat effects and extreme weather conditions, uh, I think you're really seeing uh, a much greater appreciation of the cost of increased climate change, which is a, a, a more true cost-benefit analysis of the effects of, of, of mitigation or reducing your emissions associated with, with the kinds of regulation that we're talking about as well. So it's, it's a very multi-headed beast of a conversation, but I think perhaps our politics is still arguing it through the, through the lens of maybe five, ten years ago. Whereas I think not all, but a lot of the private sector is actually kind of looking at it in terms of, well, what do I really need to be getting on with here? Uh, and can I afford to wait, wait for government policy to tell me what to do? No, I can't. Well, I, I agree with that. I think at the end of the day, uh, sorry, Giles, business people are very, very hard headed. If you show, if they think there's a dollar to be made or a cost, dollar of cost to be saved, uh, in the end, that's what they'll put our ideology to one side because very rightly, they let the dollar run run with it. And I can't remember the last time that um, I heard a politician talk about the costs of uh, not acting on climate change. Hey, David, we're going to have to wrap up pretty soon. We're very, very um, thankful to Emma for joining us because um, she did manage to squeeze us in between two appointments and we're really appreciative of that. David, very quickly, any news that um, you wish to bring to our attention before we sign off? Uh, the only thing I'm looking forward to is some action on the VRET. Uh, the Victorian government never seems to make these announcements and then keep us all waiting longer than the average TV series. What do you, what do you think, Charles? <laughs> well, they've only got a couple more weeks before they actually go into their caretaker period. So, um, yes, I would have thought it would be in good form to do it sooner rather than later. But um, I'd be interested to know behind the scenes just to what extent some of the projects that they may have chosen or may have been thinking of cho choosing are impeded by some of the network constraints which we've been talking about about. 
up that um, that's interesting. And um, look, um, my final contribution today is just noting that uh, CWP, a group that we've um, had on this podcast and talked about many of their interesting projects, the Sapphire Project and that huge project in the Pilbara, um, have taken a step forward on their 600 megawatt solar farm, which they propose to build in Angus Taylor. Um, electricity of Hume, so I think that's very thoughtful of them. I think that's a wind farm, <laughs> isn't it? Uh, uh, and uh, Giles, I'll be off uh, bicycle riding. Uh, I won't see any of the windmills in Holland, which I'm told are beautiful things because they're three or four hundred years old, but hopefully I may see a, um, a few of the more modern version. <laughs> well, hopefully too. Look, thank you very much, David, and we're going to miss you, but um, look, we'll get by for the next three weeks and um, hope to... Um, I look forward to you coming back. Um, Emma, I'd just like to say thank you very much for a fascinating discussion. It was terrific. No problem. Happy to join. Happy I could make it. Good on you. Thank you, David. Thank you, Emma, um, from the IGCC. And thank you for listening. And we'll be back this time next week. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Watt Watchers, makers of ultra-smart devices to manage electricity use and costs. Accurately monitor and control electrical circuits over the internet in real time. Visit whatwatches.com.au and take control of your energy use. Energy Insiders is also sponsored by SolarRay Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. They're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solarray.com.au and secure your energy future today.